Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. I think it was very, very important. Now a person could make the statement that there is bias and discrimination in the system. You could say that and not be told, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. You now had something to stand on. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. In the winter of 2000, a young Indigenous man named Daryl Knight came forward with a shocking allegation. He said he'd been picked up by two police officers, driven outside the city, and left there, without a coat on a dangerously cold night in Saskatoon. The allegation was particularly troubling given the events of the previous week. Two other Indigenous men had frozen to death in the exact same area, just days apart from one another. This is when reporters at the Saskatoon Star Phoenix got a tip suggesting that they look into the deaths of a teenager named Neil Stonechild. Stonechild had died 10 years earlier, but the circumstances of his death were remarkably similar to the deaths they were hearing about now. When Betty Ann Adam joined the Star Phoenix in the late 1980s, she was one of only a few Indigenous journalists across the entire country. And she spent the better part of the 90s covering a justice system that disproportionately targeted Indigenous people. So for Betty Ann, the stories about Neil Stonechild weren't exactly surprising. What was surprising was that now people were actually listening. Hi, Betty Ann. Welcome to the pod, and thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to do it. So tell me, who was Neil Stonechild? Neil Stonechild was a Soto teenager, 17 years old. He lived with his family here in Saskatoon, and um, he was a, a nice kid. According to people who knew him, he was a happy person, uh, funny, good to be around. Um, he drank a lot. That was one thing. He liked to party, and uh, he got into trouble as a result. And um, he had been in a group home, and he, the woman that he stayed with there said that he was such a nice kid. She said that he was like any other teenager. And, you know, if he got through his teens and stopped all the partying, she said that by the time he was 25, he would have been Joe Citizen. I had just been at the paper for a couple of years at the time that he died. And um, in Saskatchewan, the strange thing is that it used to be fairly commonplace that you would hear reports of people freezing to death. And in the case of Neil, I don't even really remember that that initial thing. But what I do remember was the day that Neil's mother, uh, Stella Bignell, had 
called the paper and wanted to talk to somebody about her concerns about the investigation into her son's death. And so Terry Craig, who sat at the desk beside me, did a story outlining uh, Stella's concerns. Where did she disagree with what the police had said? The police had closed the file saying that uh, Neil had died from exposure to the cold and that he died out in the North Industrial Area. And like it was, that was a big mystery. What would this kid be doing out so far away from the residential area where he had last been seen? Neil was actually at large from this group home at the time. He, he had promised his mom he'd go back to the group home tomorrow. He told the group home owner he'd come back tomorrow. But the police surmised that he was going to turn himself in at the jail at the adult men's jail. And so that didn't make any sense to his mother. Uh, and she said there were unanswered questions, like really how did he get there? And why was he wearing just one shoe? And why did he look like he'd been in a fight? Like there was a cut on his nose and his face looked bruised. Um, the case had been closed without answering any questions. Just to make sure people understand, how cold, when you say it's cold there in Saskatoon, how cold does it actually get? The night that Neil Stonechild disappeared, it was minus 28 with wind and snowing. Uh, in Saskatoon, it goes to minus 30, it goes to minus 40. And then let's fast forward 10 years and it's the winter of 2000, and you hear about three more men with stories that are very similar. Can you tell me about that? It was in February, January, February 2000. It was really cold, and uh, we had a story that a man was found frozen to death in a field out by the Queen Elizabeth power plant, so on the west edge of the city. There wasn't much of a story. It was just that this body had been found. And then that same week, there was another man whose body was found in the same remote area. They were Rodney Nastis and Lawrence Wegner. Both were young Indigenous men. And I remember that there was some news stories about it. But as I say, um, in Saskatchewan, unfortunately, people do freeze to death. And so it almost felt like, um, like, oh, that's, that's too bad sort of thing. But what happened was in that same week, another man, a third man, didn't freeze to death, but came forward saying that when he was drunk and having a being disorderly, the police had picked him up and they took him out to that area and dropped him off in the middle of the night. And he wasn't adequately dressed for the weather. They, he said they kicked him out of the car, called him a racist slur. As shocking as this was to some people, to others, it was an open secret. Police officers in Saskatoon had been disciplined as far back as 1976 for abandoning people outside of the city. They even had a name for it, Starlight Tours. And it's impossible to say how long it would have continued if Daryl Knight hadn't been lucky enough to survive the ordeal. 
At first, he didn't say anything to anybody about it. Like he didn't, I mean, he didn't go to the police. He just, he talked about it among his friends. And there was a police officer who had people that he talked to regularly on the street, just people that he knew, like down in the in the hood. And there was a, a guy who said his nephew had a story that this police officer should hear. And that was Daryl Knight. And so Daryl Knight did tell the police officer who took it to the chief of police, and then it, it hit the news. What was the response at the time? When did people, how did people respond to your stories? How can I describe it? It, it was a big story. People were shocked and outraged, and this raises questions about Nastus and Wagner, whose bodies were found out there. Like it was impossible to ignore the the possibility that Daryl Knight could have frozen to death out there, and if he had, his, his circumstances would have looked very much like those of Nastus and Wagner. It was it was impossible to ignore that, um, but. There were many, many voices, of course, the police and and uh, more conservative columnists and such who took the position that wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't that you you know that nothing's been proven in court. There's no witnesses. Nobody can say that it was the police. I'm just curious. You're saying that there was a lot of surprise and shock, but what about from the indigenous communities in Saskatchewan? I suspect they weren't as shocked. Oh, exactly. So. Among Indigenous people, there had always been stories that this sort of thing happened to people, that they, that, uh, that they, it was not uncommon for Indigenous people to be taken out of town and, and left. But in the absence of third-party witnesses, um, and, when, and when the person who was making the allegation often had been intoxicated at the time, they were not considered reliable witnesses. If they complained to the police, it was the word of a person who'd been drunk and disorderly versus the police. And it didn't lead to charges and big investigations. But now, because of Daryl Knight, all that was about to change. The two officers who had picked up Daryl Knight um, were first suspended and then they were charged with unlawful confinement. And in due course, they eventually went to trial. And they were both found guilty of unlawful confinement. And, um, and both were, of course, fired. Um, and they were sentenced to eight-month jail terms. That was really significant. Was anybody ever charged uh, for the deaths of Rodney and Lawrence? No, no, no. Those inquests were held, and they did, in, in, at both inquests, there was evidence that they had each been in contact with the police that night. But there was not enough evidence to actually charge them with anything. So it was just because Daryl Knight was lucky enough to have lived through this experience, that there could be any connection to these other police officers. Yeah, Daryl Knight lived to tell, and we'll never know exactly what happened to Lawrence and Rodney.
When did these stories from 2000 get connected to Neil Stonechild? Within the first week after the initial story of Daryl Knight, um, one of my colleagues in the newsroom, Les Perot, got a call and said, listen, go back into your files and look at a story in March of 1991 about Neil Stonechild. Les went into the archives and found the article the Star Phoenix had published in 1991, where Neil's mother said she had concerns about the investigation into her son's death. As similarities between the two stories emerged, the public wanted answers. There were all of these cases, and the justice minister said that there needed to be a public uh, judicial inquiry to look into the circumstances of Neil Stonechild's death in light of proof that, in fact, there had been at least one case that we know of where police officers dropped someone out of town. This needed to be looked at more closely. That inquiry was finally called in 2003. It was held over um, probably a six or eight month period in hotels around the city in these big ballrooms and and, uh, conference rooms. Those conference rooms were packed with people. I think it was must have been like eight or ten or more parties withstanding. One of those people was a man named Jason Roy. Jason Roy was Neil's drinking companion. He was the last person to see him alive. He is the only person who saw Neil in the custody of the police. Jason and Neil had been at a party together the night that Neil disappeared. At one point, they'd gone out to find some other friends, and they got separated. Jason was walking back to the party on Confederation Drive, and as he was walking along the sidewalk, a police car came out of an alley and stopped right in front of him, blocking his progression down the sidewalk. And the window rolled down, and a police officer driving the car asked him who he was. And Jason was on the run himself at that time. He knew there was a warrant for his arrest, so he lied about who he was. But while he was standing there, while they were doing that search on the computer in the car, Neil was in the back seat and Neil was yelling at him. And of course, both of these boys are drunk. They had drunk like a 40 of vodka. They were they were extremely drunk. And so Neil was in the back seat. Um, Jason said that he was handcuffed behind his back and he had blood on his face and he was yelling and saying, they're going to kill me. Jason, he had been picked up by the police in the past. This was not an entirely new experience for him. He'd had enough encounters with the police that he just knew he just didn't want to get arrested, and so he did what he had to do to not be arrested at the same time. Jason had actually told police about this more than a decade earlier, but his testimony never made it into a police report. He was afraid. So afraid that after first telling the police that he'd seen Neil in police custody, he was arrested sometime later on some other thing. And they uh, came to him and said, are you sure you don't want to reconsider your statement? And so he made a written statement in which he left out seeing Neil in the police car. 
And it was that statement, the one that he, the, the, the amended statement where he left out Neil being in the police car, that one went into the Neil Stonechild investigation file. After months of testimony, the inquiry finally came to a close. The commissioner, Justice David Wright, wrote a 380-page report laying out his findings. Of course, the most important findings were that Neil Stonechild was seen in the custody of the police the night he died, and that his frozen body was found five days later, bearing marks that were likely made by handcuffs. That was the most important finding. Some of the fallout was immediate, including for the two officers who left Neil for dead on that frigid night in 1990. They were suspended the day the report came out, but they were soon fired after that. And they were not charged because the standard of proof that's required for criminal charges is not the standard of proof that's applied in the judicial inquiry. A uh, judicial inquiry standard of proof is on the balance of probabilities, whereas in a criminal matter, the proof has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, it would have been decided by prosecutions that the evidence that they had wouldn't have met that threshold. What was this like for you? I mean, this inquiry was about Neil Stonechild, but clearly the other men's stories would have been connected, whether it was officially through the inquiry or just with now the understanding that this is something that the police were doing to Indigenous men in this city, that Neil was not some anomaly. You had to sit through all of this. Tell me about, like, reading the report and, and, and just the emotional toll it took. It's, um, I just remember this sense of, um, oh my God, like I, it was like, they believed him, they believed him. And then there's a part of me goes, of course they believed him, how could they not? But, but I realized that throughout all of that, you get accustomed to I guess, I guess because I'd covered courts for a long time by then, it was amazing to me that Justice Wright, having listened to all that evidence, believed him. And that was such a relief. I, I felt elated. But I just, I know that when I was alone, I, I cried. I, 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 I mean, it's still kind of emotional for me because... As Indigenous people living in and functioning in the white mainstream world, you grow up in Saskatchewan surrounded by white people, and you feel the discrimination, and you see it, and you see the injustices. This inquiry found so much evidence of systemic discrimination and bias and this sense of privilege that the white police officers had, their dismissal 
of what had happened to Neil as if it was something that was unimportant. To sit there in that room and watch retired officers, retired police chiefs and inspectors and that whole big organization coming up there one after another claiming that they didn't know anything about it. And anyone could see that people were lying and they were protecting themselves because they didn't care about this case from the outset. And there was Justice Wright saying, Jason Roy told the truth. I found it so interesting when you said your first reaction was they believed him. And then you said, of course they did. But I think the sense of privilege that the cops had also involved the idea that even if those men came out in public and said this is what happened, they assumed that they wouldn't be believed because the cops are the ones who are believed. So I I feel like that's such an interesting response from you, is that your response is they believed him. And of course you believed them, but you're reacting to a system that you've seen not believe them for generations. You know, it... Like you, you were, I felt happy about it. And yet, how can you be happy about this truth? This truth is that Neil was treated that way and, and allowed to die, and that we'll never know for sure what happened to Rodney Nastis and Lawrence Wagner in the hours before they died. And I, I think of so many Indigenous people have died not just from things like this, but we hear about police shooting people to death. And when is anyone ever charged with that? You can have a person who admits that he was holding a handgun and firing it into the head of a young, intoxicated Cree man, Colton Bushy, and have white people say he's not guilty of anything at all. In 2018, 22-year-old Colton Bushy was shot in the back of the head while trespassing on a farm owned by a white man named Gerald Stanley. Stanley was charged with killing Bushi, but was ultimately acquitted by an all-white jury. Which prompts me to the question of the thing you wrote where you said that you've written that you've seen signs of progress, but also disheartening injustices. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I think about signs that are hopeful, the Saskatoon Police Service uh, did follow through on many of the recommendations in the right report. Probably the most groundbreaking, impactful thing in Canada, I think, has been the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was a story that would not go away. Um, Things have, I think, 
there's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of movement. We see political organizations, community groups getting together and saying, how can we help? What can we change? What can we do? And I see things getting better. And yet at the same time, we also see exceedingly conservative governments that are still running roughshod over treaty rights, who are passing legislation like a no trespass legislation that clearly violates treaty um, and which prevents Indigenous people from hunting and gathering on their traditional lands. I know that's, we're kind of getting into the weeds here, I guess. No, 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 it's okay. And actually, what I was going to ask you last really incorporates what you're saying is like, when you look back at, you know, the Stone Child Inquiry and, and the the conversation around like the starlight tours and all that, where does it place in the history of our country in terms of that progression towards reconciliation or whatever word you want to use for it? I think it was very, very important because of the way it unveiled all of that systemic discrimination. That in itself meant that a, it, now a person could make the statement that there is bias and discrimination in the system. You could say that. You could say that and not be told, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. You now had something to stand on. You had some solid ground to stand on when saying that. So you're able to shift maybe non-Indigenous readers' minds a little bit because I'm assuming you weren't saying anything new to your Indigenous readers. Yeah, yeah. And 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 one of the things that I observed at that time that there was a lot more support for the the belief, right? People were expressing this idea that this is outrageous, this is not acceptable in our society, this has to change. So I saw a lot more support for those claims of discrimination coming from non-Indigenous people than I'd ever seen before. And I when I talk about things being hopeful, that's part of it, right? Like there's the policing system, the justice system, and the correctional system. Huge, huge machines. And to change their direction is not an easy thing, but it happens in small increments, right? And, 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 and this was an important increment in changing that. True Crime Byline is produced and mixed by Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhart. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. The executive producers at Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antiga. Special thanks to Aaron Valwa, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media. If you're a journalist and you think you have a story that would work really well on this podcast, let us know. Send us an email at truecrimebyline at postmedia.com.